Hey, I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. And to zoom out, Canada just celebrated a historic milestone, 40 million dots. On today's episode, with less than a week till Toronto votes in a new mayor, you'll get a quick and dirty look at where the top eight candidates stand on housing. Also, a story that is gripping the nation. A vessel with five people on board started its descent to observe the wreckage of the Titanic on the ocean floor. One hour and 45 minutes into the expedition, the craft went missing. Plus, there's a Toronto streetcar connection to the Titanic, and you'll get the story. All of that coming up on Today in T.O. It's almost time to vote, Toronto. Do you know who you want to lip sync for their legacy? Oh, I got my wires crossed, but could you imagine? I could. Out of more than 100 candidates, eight have thrust themselves into the main ring since March. And in no particular order, you've got Josh Matlow, Chloe Brown, Olivia Chow, Mitzi Hunter, Anna Bailau, Brad Bradford, Anthony Fury, and Mark Saunders. And here they are, all together. Ten years, the city of Toronto did not build anything. My and approach. as a result, we John, have a I don't know how Olivia Chow says that it's not building anything. Seat, and right. there's all these frames in the air. The problem is she only sees tax and government for the solution is housing. And you cannot have well, just housing without builders as well, without having the government at the table as well. There's both. lots of housing. Need we need both. more. But we Anna, need more supply. We need more affordable housing. Olivia, you know that there's 3,000 units under construction right now. If you don't Where know, you should it? know that I because you're it, you should you should know that because you you're running for mayor. But you should you're running for mayor. And I would put my record from affordable housing any day besides okay, yours when with, you were a counselor. Okay, okay, that's a lot of talking over each other. So let's take a breath and we'll talk about housing. And for this, we'll zoom out just a bit because as of June 16th, 2023, Canada hit a historic milestone. The population hit 40 million people. Here's Maddie Simiatiki, Director of the Infrastructure Institute at the School of Cities and Professor in the Department of Geography and Planning at the University of Toronto. Growth comes with real opportunities in terms of uh, our economy, uh, filling some of the jobs that are vacant, and also on the so- on social uh, dynamics and, and, and bringing real vitality to our communities and family connections. But uh, when it comes to the challenges, housing is really the big obvious one. I mean, we're in a housing crunch, and this really is a, a need. It just highlights the necessity for us to be building many more units at all different types of uh, price ranges to make sure that there's affordable places to live and, and great communities so that we can continue to be uh, a wonderful place to live. When we're talking Talking about housing, we really are talking about whole communities. You wouldn't want to live somewhere without schools or hospitals, green space or activities. And I've got to assume that the people in charge saw this coming. I mean, in the past year alone, 1.1 million people between permanent and temporary immigrants have chosen to live here in Canada, putting their own time, money, energy and futures into this country. We need to be able to now put real plans in place 
how are we going to build all of the units and how are we going to make sure that a healthy portion of those are deeply affordable and moderately affordable so that uh, we can be providing a roof over everyone's head and, and, and a great community. And I think that's the key. It's not just the housing. It's all of the ancillary services and infrastructure that's necessary. It, it's about building great, complete communities. And in some ways, growth helps spur that. It, it creates the employment uh, and the labor force, as, as well as the cohesion and the connections. But we need to be doing this through plans. We can't just be uh, uh, hoping and winging it. So why hasn't there been a better plan? Well, when it comes to infrastructure, we missed a generation of infrastructure investment pretty much uh, in cities across the country. We didn't invest in our public transit systems for a number of decades. Uh, We haven't kept pace in terms of building hospitals, schools. We haven't got the right mix between location and, and school capacity. We're struggling and we struggle in Canada Uh, because of our constitution was not built for a country of this size and of this level of urbanization to really come up with cohesion between the three orders of government with their different responsibilities has just been a challenge in this country. And so to create coherent plans has just been been hard. And now uh, we're under a special pressure. I mean, we now have to get this right or uh, it's going to become increasingly uh, challenging because the challenges were here before this wave of immigration. They will accelerate if we're not able to make sure that the types of housing and the types of infrastructure and social services are in place to make uh, housing neighborhoods into, into real communities. Communities. That's more of a macro look across the country. But to bring it back to Toronto, here's where the top mayoral candidates stand on housing, one at a time and quick and dirty. Josh Matlow, one of the only candidates with a costed plan. He came right out on like day one with a plan to raise property taxes by 2%, which would cost the average homeowner less than $70 and raise nearly $400 million over five years. He would also double the land transfer tax for foreign and domestic buyers who are purchasing a second property. And it may be important to note, at a recent Now debate, Brandon Gomez asked each of the candidates, minus Anna Bailao, Mark Saunders, and Olivia Chow, who weren't there, are you a landlord, yes or no? And they all answered yes, except for Matlow and Chloe Brown. Which brings me to Chloe Brown's housing platform. And keep in mind, Chloe Brown was the only candidate to run in the last municipal election, and she took the third spot with nearly 35,000 votes. Her plan is to give local communities more power in the process in the form of land trusts to tenant associations and nonprofit groups. She wants to rework property taxes and shift to a location-based assessment model and impose higher taxes on unproductive, underused lands like empty lots and storefronts. Mitzi Hunter also has a costed plan, which includes a 6% increase in property taxes, and that would be $216 annually per average homeowner. However, it would be less, only 3% for households making $80,000 or less a year. Anna Bailau has a housing first approach, not costed, but her platform is touting reforms for land use and zoning and will ensure that 20% of all new homes built by 2031 are purpose-built rentals. Brad Bradford's platform is based on a lot of zoning restructuring as well. He wants to eliminate red tape to reduce delays and streamline approvals. Bradford says he will unlock government-owned lands to build more housing with at least 33% classified as affordable. Mark Saunders is a little more specific when it comes to cutting application processes for new builds and developments. He doesn't say how, but says when. Approvals under Saunders will take 
up to a year from the current average, which is 32 months or over two and a half years. He also says he'll take the property tax off affordable housing units, but it's a lot of biz speak and not a lot of hard details. Anthony Fury wants to eliminate land transfer tax for first-time home buyers before phasing it out altogether. Um, but this is a revenue generator for the city. Not always a strong one, but Fury doesn't say where additional revenue would come from. He's also a fan of six-month approval timelines for new housing development applications, as long as it complies with all city, provincial, and federal rules and regulatory bodies. If it takes longer than six months, these applications will be automatically approved? Yeah, I can see that backfiring. And now for the name that's on everybody else's lips, Olivia Chow. Chow wants to create 3,000 rental supplements with the help of the provincial and federal governments. She'll raise the municipal land transfer tax on luxury homes, raise the vacant home tax from 1% to 3%, which we know was kind of a bust for the city coffers anyway. And she plans to partner with the construction sector to establish city-owned rental buildings operated by nonprofits. Chow's plan is a bit more of a long game, and she does want to tax. It's just the amount that she hasn't really landed on. And she's the first to admit that she doesn't have a firm idea because she's doing things from a people and services first perspective. Yes, I would um, ask those that are buying luxury homes that are three, five, ten, twelve million dollars, they can afford to pay a bit more. And then those speculators, land speculators that buy a home and then they evict the tenants, leave it vacant, wait for the right time to to uh, rebuild. Uh, they can afford to pay a bit more on the vacancy tax from one to three percent, and that would generate forty four million. So uh, we'll add it all up and look at the inflation and what's the interest rate um, nine months from now, and we'll come up with a modest tax increase. <laughs> my political opponents are making stuff up. They're saying like 25%, 20%. No, no, they're wrong. They're making it up. Um, not going to do that. So yes, a lot of people are on the attack when it comes to Chow because she's been in the lead literally this entire time. But I know modest is not a number. And listen, whoever you vote for, just get out and exercise that right and that privilege. We have a really unique and lovely opportunity to have a city that we want and deserve, to flourish, to provide for folks, to have a better quality of life and space to grow, learn, work, and play. On the way next, full disclosure, I had planned to touch on something else, but this story is just too wild and I have to share. You'll hear more after this. This might sound morbid, but I'm going to frame it as educational because it was. For years, growing up, on April 15th, we'd get together with my cousins and have a Titanic day. Now, of course, the date is significant because in the early hours of April 15th, 1912, the ship went down in the North Atlantic Ocean, only four days into her maiden voyage. We did this before the movie came out in 1997, so I won't spend too much time rehashing the details because it has been... 111 years since the Titanic, the unsinkable ship that sank, found its final resting place on the ocean floor, about 12,500 feet below sea level. 
And while I grew up with a healthy interest in shipwrecks and a fear and respect for the sea, there is no way I would pay money to crawl inside of a metal egg with four other people to go down there and see it. By now, I'm sure you know the story, or at least parts of it. And keep in mind that as of producing this episode on the 20th of June, the latest is this. At 7.30 a.m. on Sunday, a five-person crew was dropped into the Atlantic Ocean in a 22-foot-long submersible vessel, the Titan. This was a tour to view the wreckage of the Titanic, hosted by Ocean Gate Expeditions, and they promote it as a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for $250,000 a person. Now, the vessel itself is like a minivan or a small truck, 22 feet by nearly 10 feet, and on board there was, according to CNN, a billionaire father-son duo, a wealthy explorer, a diver with decades of experience, and the CEO of OceanGate. Now, the sub was supposed to ping every 15 minutes to indicate its location, but about two hours in, the pings stopped. Here's David Hambling, a freelance science and technology journalist. All we know is that the um, submersible lost contact with its mothership. Um, So we assume there was some kind of accident uh, and there is no sign of it now. Uh, Now, the military and other rescuers have been using sonar. And what they're doing at the moment, uh, as I understand it, is listening for sound. So if the submersible is making any noise, if there are any... Uh, air pumps or engines or anything on board that are making noise, they should be able to locate it from that. Or if the people on board are deliberately making noise to alert the rescuers, they should be able to find it from that. Finding something on the seabed at that incredible depth, when, as we know, there's a lot of debris down there in the Titanic already, is going to be very challenging. And doing that in the time available is going to be extremely difficult. The big problem here is that it's at such an extreme depth. Uh, There have been submarine rescues before. There have been people who've actually escaped on their own from stricken submarines before, but only at basically relatively shallow depths. Uh, I mean, the Guinness World of Records record for a submarine escape was a chap called Bill Morrison, uh, who was a British sailor who was testing uh, an experimental midget submarine in Loch Striven in Scotland in 1945. Um, They had a collision. The submarine went down. Uh, it landed on the lock bed, which was 200 feet. And somehow he managed to force the hatch open and came up with the bubble of air. Uh, He was unconscious immediately and he uh, suffered a few problems afterwards. Um, But basically he was um, perfectly okay. That was from a depth of 200 feet, 60 meters. Getting close to the limits of what people can uh, survive naturally. When you get beyond that, you start needing special equipment and, and it gets very difficult. Scuba divers don't go below 130 feet without special equipment. I'm not the first to say this, but we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the depths of the ocean. And that's part of the problem here. Also, it's harsher to put something deep into the ocean than out into space. Meaning, if you're sending something down there, it's got to be strong, not necessarily high tech. Well, it's not a matter of advanced technology. All you really need is a steel eggshell. Uh, It just has to be thick enough to withstand the phenomenal pressures. Um, Because with Morrison, that was um, 200 feet, 60 meters. With this one, we're talking about 4,000 meters, 12,000 feet down. That's vastly beyond the crush depth of uh, any military submarine out there. You require a very specialized research vessel to do this. 
Now, as I say, it doesn't have to be high tech. You just need a, a strong enough shell to do that. The problem is, if anything goes wrong while you're down there, you are in big, big trouble. Of course, time is everything. It's so critical. And as of writing this and voicing this, there was only about 40 hours left of oxygen left in the submersible. We do see this every time a submarine is lost because uh, we know exactly what could happen and we know there is a chance of rescuing people. But unfortunately, it's usually a very slim chance. Did you know that six survivors of the Titanic are buried here in Toronto? One of them was a man named Arthur Puchin, and it turns out he left something behind that was found decades later on the ocean floor. His wallet. And you'll never guess what was found inside. Producer Glenn Bergonier has the story. And who would have thought that one of the most famous shipwrecks in the history of sea travel would have a connection to Toronto, let alone offer a glimpse of what Toronto Transit might have looked like back in the turn of the 20th century. The Titanic sank in 1912 after hitting that infamous iceberg. But did you know that a well-known Toronto entrepreneur was also on board at that time? The man's name was Major Arthur Puchin. And before you ask why this is all important at all, remember that very recently, 12 Toronto streetcar tickets were found by researchers buried amongst the rubble. Actually, these tickets were found in the wallet believed to belong to Major Puchin who was forced to leave his wallet behind as he abandoned the ship. As the story goes, Major Puchin was returning to Toronto from a business trip in London. On April 14th, at about 11.30pm, he claims to have felt what he initially believed was a heavy rogue wave hitting the ship on what was otherwise a relatively calm day on the ocean. Upon leaving his room to examine what happened, he noticed the boat was listing and at an angle, and within 10 minutes of this, lifeboats were filled with women and children and were being slowly lowered into the frigid water below. As Major Puchin was watching on, he said that either a captain or a second officer approached him and asked him for help as he was an experienced sailor and the crew needed all the help they can get. He was ordered to get on one of these lifeboats and ensure that the other 23 passengers made it safely. And after some debates and questions about who was actually in charge, one famous American woman who became colloquially known as the unsinkable Molly Brown decided she had enough, took charge of the lifeboat, and eventually led them to rescue. In the aftermath, Puchin was the only Canadian to testify about the sinking of the Titanic at a U.S. Senate inquiry, where he criticized the crew for being experienced but unfamiliar with the ship and unable to cooperate and coordinate as a crew. But, hero or survivor, he was dubbed persona non grata by high society back in Toronto when he returned, with even the precursor of the Globe and Mail, known as the Mail and Empire, writing, He said he was a yachtman so he can get off the Titanic, and had there been a fire, he would have said that he was a fireman. But back to the TTC and not so much on Puchin. You might be asking, how did these tickets end up at the bottom of the Atlantic if Major Puchin did not? Well, there are a few theories. One being that in his haste to examine the incident, he grabbed his overcoat and left his wallet in the bedroom, never made it back, and so it ended up with the ship. Others suggest that when Puchin was ordered to jump onto a lifeboat that was lowering, he accidentally dropped his wallet out of his pocket and it fell to the bottom of the Atlantic. However it got there, we ended up with 12 glimpses of what transit passes might have looked like back in the early 1900s. And in total, over 1,500 men, women, and children lost their lives due to the sinking of the Titanic.
just absolutely wild. I don't even know what else to say, so I'll just wrap it up. This podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week, and by that time, we'll have a new mayor in Toronto. I hope I like them. Until then, tell everyone at work about Today in TO, and we'll chat again very soon. Bye for now. <laughs>